What is happening, everyone? Welcome again to The Window, Canada sports betting podcast. Ahead on today's episode of The Window, that's a wrap. The 2019 NFL regular season is somehow in the books. I'll document the ups and downs for us on the podcast The Final Records and what we can be proud of even with a disappointing close to the season. A breakdown of how to grade yourself after a full season, the concept of luck relative to your baseline ability, and of course, I'll sift through yesterday's action, including the Sunday night fiasco, the only appropriate way to end this weird season. It's time to head to the window. Let's go. Welcome to The Window. I'm your host and sports betting professional, Matt Russell. Happy New Year, everybody. I think I forgot to wish people Happy New Year on Sunday morning. Of course, you know, Sunday morning. we got a lot going on here. We can't be worried about the calendar. But Happy New Year to everybody out there. Here's the big things for the future uh, in 2021. Hopefully you caught the year in review podcast that we did last week. That was sort of fun to go back and cull those different clips from uh, the different conversations that I had over the course of 2020. Uh, hope, hopefully many, many more of those to come in 2021. Uh, it's Monday, the NFL recap, our final NFL recap for the regular season. But don't worry, we're not going anywhere when it comes to the NFL. And so let's start here with about last night, Sunday night football. Yeah, what a weird way to end the season. And the thing, obviously we're sports betting focused here on the podcast, and part of that is sort of being level-headed, and we don't do the whole sports talk radio hype, like, oh, this is the most disgusting thing that I've ever seen, and this hot take screaming, you know, like, for me, I'm just tired of that, right? And, like, people... You saw people tweet, like, oh, can't wait to listen to, you know, New York sports radio. Like, why? We're just, we're going to hear the same stuff that we always do. Now, obviously, you know, different circumstance, different situation behind this, but like just people being angry, people screaming, people just being ridiculous, essentially, right? And so, again, this show, we're obviously sports betting angles. What, what do we take from that? All of that kind of thing. But sometimes it gets a little blurred and sometimes it leans a little bit over to you know, being a little sports talky, because again, we're all sports fans, we're all sort of interested in this thing on a macro level as well. And so for me, it just comes down to the different teams involved, right? You know, you get the Giants, okay, well, the Giants, like they should, you know, they should be upset and like, oh, I feel bad for the Giants having to watch that. Giants won six games, okay? The Giants can just take a hike, all right? Like we've seen enough of the Giants over the course of certainly the last month where they lost three straight games going into that game against Dallas. And even before that, right, blowing the game against the Eagles back on Thursday Night Football. Now, did that help help us at the time? Yeah, it was great. Arguably the highlight of the entire season so far, uh, or at least for the regular season in its entirety. So, yeah, they could have gone ahead and won an extra game here or there. So I don't really care that the Giants missed out. Like, oh, poor Giants. Like, guess what? You get a decent draft pick. 10 years from now, three years from now, who knows, you're going to feel a lot better about not being in this playoffs, given hopefully for them, and again, I don't care about the Giants, I don't really care about anybody, uh, hopefully for them, they, they they have a good draft pick and they can look back and go, oh, thank God, 
that the Eagles tanked really helped us out long term. Maybe it ends up in there you get a quarterback who isn't Daniel Jones, but that's a bigger, uh, bigger picture story. As far as the Eagles are concerned, it's yeah, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing, but I get it, right? Like you okay, you know, you go in, you go, oh, you know what? Like this is our opportunity to get a higher draft pick and et cetera, et cetera. And fundamentally, like I'm all for that, right? Because I, from a fandom standpoint, if you will, and cheering your team to win a Super Bowl. And listen, again, I don't have a team, but if you were a fan of that team, you want that team to win a Super Bowl. You don't care that they, you know, they make a playoff or that they win a meaningless game in Week 17, or they get this sort of hollow victory that they knocked out. You know, they were able to knock Washington out, and it's like, okay, great. Well, the Giants just got get to go to the playoffs anyway, right? Somebody always gets that playoff spot. So when you're talking about like knocking some team out of a playoff spot, it's like, yeah, okay, but you're helping another team. So there's always somebody going to be happy. The problem, you know, in this situation is someone's getting those spots, right? The 14 playoff spots are getting taken by somebody out there. But there's still, you'd like to see in a football game, some level of competitiveness in the moment. And I think what the Eagles thought they were doing, I think they thought they were taking that game before the game even started. When they sat a bunch of people, like Miles Sanders not playing, Dallas Goddard, you know, laundry list, just absolute laundry list. And I think they thought they were tanking that game when, you know, everybody's using this as well. You know, uh, Doug Peterson says Nate Sudfeld is going to play in this game. I think Doug Peterson thought they were going to be down three touchdowns in the fourth quarter. <laughs> I thought that he was going to be like, okay, well, let's get some Nate Sudfeld. Like, I think, I thought he was sort of laying the groundwork for quote unquote pulling Jalen Hurts in a blowout game. And then all of a sudden, the game is essentially tied if they kick that field goal late in the third quarter instead of going for it on fourth down. The game's essentially tied, and it's like, oh, okay, well, now we can't put in Sudfeld. Like, we, I guess we have to try to win this game, you know, yada, yada, yada. And he just stuck with his plan. He's like, we are not going to try to win this game. We are going to play Nate Sudfeld. Like, they know Nate Sudfeld sucks, right? Like, Nate Sudfeld was, has been on the team for, like, three years, and they still drafted Jalen Hurts. So as much as we think that they think as much as we think that they think that they know that we know, as much as the, as we think that they think that Carson Wentz sucks, and that's why they drafted Jalen Hurts. We talked about that a few weeks ago on the show. They certainly had to have known Nate Sudfeld sucked. <laughs> we all do. And now we really all do after having watched him play. But even if he didn't, it's not like that's a really good position to put him in anyway, right? It's like, so you're we're really giving this kid a chance to do anything anyway. He wouldn't throw the ball down the field. The one time that he did wasn't basically a punt, uh, an arm punt interception. But fundamentally for the Eagles, if you're trying to get this, you know, move up on the draft, right? And I, and I tweeted out yesterday, like, moving from nine to six in the NFL or any movement in the draft, like it costs you draft capital. It, capital. It's expensive to do so. So why not just lose the last game of the season that no one's going to remember and not have to worry about that, needing that draft capital. You're getting yourself closer to a higher pick if you wanted to even move up from there. Obviously in this draft, I think six is probably a decent spot to just sort of sit and be at. Um, it would be insane if they went, uh, you know, tried to jump up and draft yet another quarterback. So, you know, they're not going to move up. So I get it. You're going to move up. You're going to go from nine to six. But in this weird way, like, I kind of feel like the Eagles are too good for that. And I mean that from, like, an organizational standpoint. Like, they just won a Super Bowl a couple of years ago. And 
it's kind of depressing if you're an Eagles fan or just somebody who respects the organization that like they're going to stoop to this where it's like they rather instead of being competitive in that game in prime time like this wasn't a one o'clock game this is what the this isn't what the Jags are doing the Jags are trying to save their franchise by tanking that game against the Bears a couple of weeks ago this isn't what that it like this is moving from nine to six like that's you know that's the price of your dignity like it really is sort of more of a dig like yeah there's a bunch of different ways that you can go ahead and get ahead in this world but like at the price of what and in this case the price of Doug Peterson's dignity was three slots in the top third of a draft in the NFL when because of positional uh, differentiations right like whether you're sixth or your ninth you're probably going to get a top player at a certain position right whether it's defensive line offensive line you know defensive back etc cetera, etc cetera. so where's the dignity <laughs> right like have some respect for yourself and try to win the game as for Washington then this is really the more you know bigger picture betting thing like that was horrific a team was laying down and letting you not letting you score but like letting you take the game all you had to do was drive it down once for a touchdown and the game was going to be over without any question like the eagles could have thrown hurts back in there late even down six and really gone for the win if sort of sanity had uh taken over and but they they opted not to do that and that bailed out washington right like how many different chances did the eagles have in the last five six seven minutes of that game um, n never mind the whole fourth quarter. Like, it wouldn't have taken much to be like, oh, you know what? Nate Sudfeld does suck. You know what? Let's have some dignity here. Maybe a captain comes over and says, hey, coach, can we try to win this game and put Jalen Hurts back in? Like, for God's sakes, man, like, they're doing the best they can to give us this game, right? And even, like, the fumble that they recovered uh, between the exchange between Smith and Gibson, um, or I should say, I think actually Smith uh, off the snap, but... Like, that was just a really embarrassing performance from Washington. And I'm all, like, I'm, I was all set to bet Washington plus, you know, over a touchdown against Tampa Bay at home, you know, late night Tommy, like, you know, past his bedtime, like, perfectly set up. And listen, maybe I get to that by the time Saturday rolls around. Maybe the number gets out of control because of what we saw with regards to Washington. And we all try to remember what Washington looked like against Pittsburgh you know, against Dallas, you know, in these better games that they had. But it was just really pathetic, to be honest, that Washington played the way they did against a team that, listen, you look at the starting lineup that NBC put up, and it's, you know, they go the, you know, the five defensive backs, and they, t and, you know, they have their little PFF rating, because Collinsworth uh, owns PFF, and they put the little PFF rating for two of the DBs, and the other three of the five that are across the board there don't even have a rating because that's how inexperienced they are. So any other team is going to absolutely take advantage of that. Just not <laughs> the Washington football team. And you're just like, oh, oh, that's what we're dealing with with regards to Alex Smith. So how they're going to keep up with Tampa, um, you know, having watched that fresh, right? And again, we don't want to take just what we saw the most recently, uh, but when you start looking back at some of their results and you start going like, okay, like there's no team here that they beat that is in the class of Tampa Bay, even the Pittsburgh Steelers, because again, we've seen what we've seen from the Pittsburgh Steelers in, uh, you know, the last few weeks.
So uh, just what a weird way. What, just an incredibly weird way to end uh, a really weird season. Uh, as for our season on the window, right? It's a regular season over, so tally it up. How did we do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Circa contest plays, right? Five games against the spread every uh, single week. 46, 36, and 3 for 56%. Um, top 200, it looks like. Haven't seen the standings yet as of this morning. Top 200 out of... 3,100 plus people. So obviously that's a good result. Uh, it's not cash the way that it was cash last year in the super contest. For those of you just sort of um, catching up here, uh, I was you know in the super contest for the previous nine years with everything sort of moving around this year and the different guarantees. Um, I should say Circa actually guaranteeing a million dollars versus the Westgate who hosts the Super Contest not having any guarantees and taking a cut and all of that sort of thing. I moved after nine years from the Super Contest over to Circa Million uh, and ha after having cashed twice in the Super Contest and a couple of other times coming awfully close. So this ends up being actually the fifth best uh, all-in-all season in contest play for me and that's because the last three weeks just frankly weren't good enough six seven and two i believe over the course of the last 15 games the last three weeks of the season after being in the top 100 and being within shouting distance now listen it's not it's 15 games there's just not a ton of variance there i obviously hoped to have a better finish to the season if we go you know 10 and 5 11 and 4 we probably jump into the cash because again relatively low scores across the board this season from a point spread standpoint which is interesting because it's sort of the opposite of the way that Survivor went for a lot of people. And we'll get to that in a second. But Circa goes 46, 36, and 3 for 56%. Uh, percent. And you kind of look over it, and this is sort of a weird year because there weren't a ton. You know, a lot of times there's just an absolute ton of bad beats. Maybe you get lucky a few times, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But for me, it's only really circling a couple um, two, maybe three, and they happened in that week 12, week 13 zone where we actually were feeling it a little bit. And that was, you know, there are weeks, you're not going to go three and two every week and finish at 60%, all right? You're going to sort of, that's your baseline for, you know, to to stay in the hunt, but you're going to need a four and one, you're going to need some five and O's in the mix, right? Last year, we had two five and O's. This year, never got the five and O that we were looking for. And in part, because, you know, in that week 12 uh, week 13, especially week 13 where we go three and two, but we have Atlanta plus two and a half against New Orleans. They're in the red zone. It's third and two, and they hand the ball to Todd Gurley, and he starts going sideways. He starts going backwards, and then Atlanta eventually uh, you know, goes out on, on four downs. Uh, and then Philadelphia with the Aaron Jones, you know, in Green Bay, the Aaron Jones long 75-yard run when all they needed was a first down. And, you know, there's an atrocity of a beat. And the week before that, the Chargers, plus five and a half at Buffalo. They get the Hail Mary down to the one-yard line. They run it with Austin Eckler. And then just the sequence of events uh, involved during and after that run. Absurd, right? Just a game that, you know, covers 99% of the time in that circumstance. So that's three games right there. So even if you say, okay, what if we get two out of those three games? Well, two out of three in this situation, you know, right, moves from 46, 36 to all of a sudden you're at 48 and 34. And now you're at, uh, instead of 56%, you're at 58 and a half percent. And that's sort of what the baseline is. Because honestly, if you go through, and I'd be honest about this, because that's what we do here, 
there weren't a ton of lucky there weren't really any lucky wins like there were no games at the end where you're like oh man really lucky to have pulled that off like no one was talking you know oh that was a bad beat for the other side and so you go okay all it takes is two games to sort of switch this thing from one to the other well what if instead of being unlucky in two games we're lucky in two games and then now that moves it from 58 and a half percent now we're up to 61 plus percent now instead of being at you know 47 and a half points we're now at 51 and a half points well now you're in the cash and that's all that it takes and so the whole point really is establishing your baseline right like establishing okay well here's what it kind of should have been right we acknowledge that there were losses that like were were just flat out bad bad picks right like miami plus one I, you know we'll get into that in a little bit here but like that one just never close and you know there's sort of no excusing that from a football standpoint right and you go okay there was no luck involved there right but like how do we measure luck in all of this and we'll get you know talk about that a little bit more but as far as the season records are concerned best bets we talk about those as well and so while we go 56 percent in the circuit plays the best bets go 76 66 and four and for the best bets you want them to be a little bit lower from a percentage standpoint, as strange as that might sound, right? You want your circa plays, your contest plays to be the best, you know, your best foot forward, the best thing that you do, the best percentage percentage that you can possibly get. Now, you don't want your the rest of your best bets to be absolute losers, right? But you do want them to be at a slightly lower percentage so that you don't feel like you've left anything on the table, but that you've still been profitable on the season. So at about 54%, we're still profitable on the season. All games. 128, 123, and 5. Not great, but they don't have to be because that's just picking all the games. And the point is, if you're picking and you're betting every single game out there, you're probably doing it wrong because, the, you know, as much as you may think, oh, I'm really good at this, I'm really good at this, it's not, you know, being really good at this isn't picking every single game and doing really well. It's identifying what are the games that I have the best edge on here that I can differentiate versus all of the other games. Because if there were, whether there's 256 games like there are in the NFL, or whether there was 100, you know, 1,256 games in the NFL, eventually, because of the nature of the point spread, you're just going to gravitate down to 50%, right? It's like rolling dice uh, at a craps table. It's like playing blackjack. The longer that you sit there, the percentages are going to work out mathematically how they're supposed to work out. And if you're in Vegas, whether it's a slot machine, whether it's blackjack, whether it's craps, there's no way to beat the system other than to catch, you know, essentially heat, right? To be to be on fire, to be hot for a little while, to get that little streak and then get out of there, right? And it's the same thing when it comes to football. So you're trying to get your three games, your five games, your eight games each week to sort of catch a streak throughout the course of 17 games because you know that if we play this out as long as they, you, you can possibly play it out the numbers are going to work against you like that's just how this works it doesn't matter how good you think you are at it you have to change the framework for how you think of success and so the success is again not going 60 percent on a billion different games it's taking the best games that you have and that's your success analyzing what your best chance is to hit 60%, right? Whether that's 10 games all year to go six and four, whether that's 100 games all year to go 60 and 40. But again, the more games that you play, 
the tougher it is. Now, if we're starting to talk over our lifetime and we're being really selective and now we're talking 100,000 games, then yeah, that's how you win 60%. You just slowly accumulate, um, you know, hitting 55, 56, 58, 50, you know, 62% over the course of tiny pockets of time. That all adds up to success over a long period of time. As for the teaser bucket, fun little thing that we do every Friday, in some cases Sunday, um, you know, picking together what games are eligible mathematically for a tease, right? A lot of times it's a plus two and a half, moving it up to eight and a half, give or take a half point here or there. Some six and a halfs that we might want to knock down to a half point. Those are sort of the fundamentals of teasing uh, and doing so mathematically correctly. But when you're teasing, you're doing so at a price tag of minus 270 per leg in the teaser. Now we throw it all in the teaser bucket and it's up to you to decide, oh, do I want to do a five-team teaser? Do I want to do a two-team teaser at minus 120? You know, or do I want to get loose at plus money with three, four, five, six, whatever you do type of teasers, right? You're going to do what you're going to do. But fundamentally, the teaser legs in and of themselves as a singular piece of the puzzle at minus 270 need to be successful at 73% of the time to be a break-even proposition. Well, in the teaser bucket this year, we were 67.21, had a great deal of success, and that's good for 76.1%. So again, overall, that was profitable. Obviously, your level of profit depends on sort of how you teamed those up, right? The more conservative, obviously, the less losses you were going to have, the more aggressive, you know, you'd have really big wins over the course of a season. You're probably sitting there going like, yeah, I listen to the podcast every week. We had a couple of 5-0, 6-0 teaser runs there, and I ended up hitting a 3-4-5 team teaser. It was awesome. These are the things that happen. But over the course of the season, you know, you can't grade it on how much did I win necessarily. You have to grade it on how did we do each individual leg on the teasers. Again, 67 and 21 for 76% profitability in the teaser bucket. The Moneyline Parlay bucket, a little bit less so, 27 and 58. Now, these are underdog money lines, and they varied from, you know, we tried to keep it as a baseline of about plus 150 you know, nothing really lower than that. A couple of times, just based on the week, we kind of did, you know, kind of cheated a little bit on that going with some 120s. But we paired them a lot of the times with plus 300s, plus 350, plus 400. I think there's even a plus 500 in there somewhere. somewhere. But this was that season, and it's indicated by the survivor successes by not just, you know, us, but everybody out there. You know, high percentage of survivor wins um, over the course of any contest right yours mine circa million or excuse me circus survivor etc and so we go 2758 31.76 percent so we would have needed to average plus 215 as an underdog price as an as a winning underdog price to be profitable well i don't think that's necessarily what happened here so we did lose a little bit when it came to the money line parlay and those each week are about you know we we invest one unit out of our weekly sum, right? So if you're if you're spending ten units uh, over the course of all you know your different spread bets, maybe your teasers, et cetera, et cetera, you know we're taking one to try to hit one of these massive underdog moneyline parlays. And in other seasons, when there's more upsets, <laughs> those are going to be more successful. We're going to accidentally run in to a couple of those moneyline parlays and hit some really big ones. It this was just not that season, right? So as underdog you know, focused betters, we're looking at it 
each week and going like, okay, who could win? Who could, you know, who could lose here? Like which team could knock off this team, whatever. And like, yes, this season we got the Jets and the Rams. And, and though that was such an upset that we couldn't see that coming. Cincinnati against Pittsburgh, such an upset that we couldn't see that coming. There was a dearth in seven to 10 point underdogs winning games outright that, listen, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I would venture to say that that probably hasn't happened to that degree ever before. You know, we got, again, those token two-touchdown underdogs, but there just wasn't that, especially weeks two through 17. Week one, we got there with, you know, the Jags had the upset, um, a couple of upsets um, in that seven-point range that week as well, as that was the biggest bloodbath for Survivor. And usually that happens a couple of different times during the course of the season, and then subsequently makes the money line parlay, the underdog money line parlay, uh, a lot more uh, uh, beneficial, a lot more profitable. So am I happy with how the season went? Well, the answer to that's easy. No. Uh, but at the moment, I'm sort of in this headspace where I'm kind of obsessed with the concept of luck. And it's been only accentuated since that Ravens-Browns game on Monday Night Football, which is obviously an incredibly good example for, you know, on a couple of different levels, right? And we've talked ad nauseum about the Kareem Hunt prop and just the unluckiness of that, of a bet winning or losing based on a scoring a quirk in that you know if somebody laterals to someone and it doesn't hit them it doesn't even have to be caught by them it, if it doesn't hit them it's considered a fumble and thus your yardage moves back and all of that, that sort of thing because just there's no way to explain some things beyond luck and if you don't think that luck exists or that it doesn't have a major factor in year-to-year -year record you know or even week-to-week -week record of course you've you've probably lost the plot and, and, and hopefully you're in the right place now listening to this and maybe you get a better understanding of sort of, you know, everything that it takes to kind of be able to be profitable in this situation. But part of that is luck, right? Like the guys who win the super contest or win the circa million, like they have to attribute luck to that. If you go through the 32 people who won the circus survivor, you know, and are splitting 2.39 million among, across 32 where they're not even Get making a hundred thousand dollars back which again i wouldn't have even as recently as three weeks ago i would have thought it would be even less than 32 like you can probably find in every single one of them three four five situations where they got out of dodge just barely surviving a game uh you know each week and so what we have to sort of figure out here is like well what's our baseline right? It's like a concussion test, right? Where everybody does their concussion uh, baseline test at the start of the season. And then you take a big hit, whether it's hockey, football, whatever, and you go in and you know, how is your brain functioning? Is it functioning the way that it did at the start of the season? And you know, if it's not, well, you probably have a concussion, right? Like that's the situation here. So you have to figure out, okay, well, what is my baseline for my record and if your baseline is 50 percent and you need to be lucky to hit 52 53 percent like that's not ideal then you probably need to really really reevaluate some of the stuff that you do well fun thing about 2020 or whatever is that it makes 10 years of contest play for me and over the course of 10 years of contest play obviously great seasons not so great seasons there's even an under 500 season in there my record is 463, 359, and 26. Now, I'll save you the math on that. That is 56.3%, which is the exact same percent. Like, 56% is what we did this year. So we've sort of baseline concussion level of, of success. So, uh, you know, 
if you said to me, hey, what's your what's your record going to be next season? And you had to I had to absolutely guess like the correct percentage. I've got enough information here at 463, 359 and 26 to say, yeah, probably about 56. And if we get lucky more than we're not lucky, we'll we'll move up. And if we have a really good season, maybe, you know, I have a good season from, a you know, I gain a percentage or two just being better then that's great and then maybe i get another percentage or two because i'm lucky and so you know the thing is like this is my first nfl season doing this podcast and imagine for a second you know put yourself in my shoes if you will telling people before the season that you're going to give out your best bets every single week stuff that you used in contests you know, best bets, otherwise, other stuff. Every single week. And not just part of a show. Like, okay, like, hey, I'm just going to offhand do this, whatever, whatever. It's not a big deal. But to literally be like, this is what I'm playing in the contest. This is what our, our best bets are. This is what we should be betting. This is what we shouldn't be betting, right? Imagine that level of sort of vulnerability, if you will, with regards to your picks. And then they're actually good, right? Like, we literally have a show on Sunday saying, like, these are officially the picks. And then they actually be, you know, have them actually be good, like good enough to be in the top 100 through 15 weeks of a 3000 plus person high stakes contest. Find me another show out there that does that, right? A lot of shows talk about the contests that are, you know, they'll tell you that they're in the contest. And then just never talk about it again after they start 20 and 25. And maybe they're 25 and 20 and they start talking about it. And of course, they're going to quarterlies, you know, get paid out in some of these contests. And they talk about that. And like, oh, you know, I went four and one last week so I can, you know, believe I have a chance at a quarterly prize or something along those lines. Right. But no other show is literally coming to you on Sunday and being like, these are this is what we're doing. Survivor. Right. Like this is this is a pick that we're going to make. You literally can do this at 12.05 right now. You can literally make these bets at 12.05, right? Like think of the vulnerability in that because it didn't have to go well. And again, it could have gone better, right? Because it could always go better if we were 65%. There were going to be games that would be like, oh man, we could have hit 70%. Could have been an all-time year. Like that's that that can happen, right? Again, 85 games in a contest is still a pretty small sample size, like over the course, you know, you could do 85 games in a week in college basketball and it wouldn't be like completely insane that, you know, from a volume standpoint, you'd be like 85, okay, 10, you know, 10 to 15 uh, a day seems like a lot, but Saturdays you can pretty easily bet 20 to 25 college basketball games. Like you can get to 75, 85 games pretty quickly in college basketball. And so, I should feel a lot better about it because like I went and I said, okay, like this is what we're going to do. And if you followed every single pick to the letter of law and I realize that people don't do that, you're going to listen, you're going to do your own thing. I completely get that. And that's why I don't sweat about it too, too much. But like just sitting back and being like, yeah, I'm bummed out about the record. But just the fact that it's, I said, hey, before the season starts, this is what I'm doing. If you want to join the party here, welcome aboard. Like I have to consider that a success. And so there's sort of, you know, I'm kind of fighting it a little bit, um, you know, as, a, as we review the regular season. And I pride myself on never being like a keep a, keeping up with the Joneses type of a guy, but I do this podcast and now I become more acutely aware of how others operate in the industry, in the sports betting media space, especially as it grows literally by the day. People who get paid to give you information, to teach and or just give out picks with kind of no explanation like it's everywhere and you have to sift through it and you're just and you're and you have to kind of figure out like who is valuable and who's not 
And for me, just sitting back going like, it's incredibly frustrating because it's this really important time in the industry that I've been really into for the last two decades. And the followers of these of these different entities, you know, who've created their following for some other reason and are now getting into the sports betting space as if like, oh, because we know a lot about sports, we're going to be successful here. And like, again, that's what we talk about a ton on this show. It's like, yeah, I knew a lot about sports, you know, 15 years ago, but it didn't help me from a sports betting standpoint until I learned how to sports bet, until I learned how bankroll management works, you know, all of those sorts of things, how a market works, perception, um, handicapping, all of those different things. And it's such an important time and these people just don't know any better and they just follow along, right? And I see, and you know, same podcasts and radio shows that I listen to and I, I listen to it and I always say, listen to as many as you can because you'll get different nuggets from different people and in some cases you might want to listen to shows because you know that they're going to be unsuccessful and that if you are on the opposite side of them in certain spots that might be the best indication that you're on to something than anything else you know like the radio show hot take guys decide oh let's use our platform to hop on the betting train right like betting is cool now right it's out of the darkness and now it's cool let's try doing that and it's like you know you made your bones by screaming hot takes and being goofy and whatever. And like, there's a, there's a value to that and people enjoy that. And I like a good rant as much as the next guy. And maybe this is one of those, but you're not teaching anybody. And this isn't a situation where like, oh, okay, like this person's going to look dumb if they say this in front of their friends. This is, you're giving people betting advice. Like there's a lot of pressure to that. And that's what I mean about saying before the NFL season started or whether it was the hockey bubble or any of those where you go like the pressure of, of not costing people money. Forget about winning money for a second, right? It's just the idea of not costing people money if they decide to just blindly follow you. Like there's a pressure to that and being successful in not doing that means something to me. And I don't know that it means anything to these, you know, other people, if you will, right? To me, it's really, really reckless. And how reckless? Well, it depends kind of how good they end up being, right? Like if you get the marketing people masquerading as good bettors, right? They make 10 bets, they win three, they celebrate the three bets, and they forget about the seven bets that they lost. Or even just the, you know, they go five and five, right? Because any monkey can go five and five. We go five and five, and you celebrate the five wins, and you forget about the five losses. And it makes you makes people think that you are good at this, and that they should be blindly following you, like the guy trying to give you a stock tip right? Well, where is that guy when the stock goes in the tank, right? He's not refunding you anything in the same way I'm not refunding you anything if we go bad for a month, which again is going to happen, has happened, will happen again. Bunch of new sports, right? College basketball, 7-1-1 and one on Saturday, by the way. Um, <laughs> hockey starting next week, all of that sort of thing. And like, I feel terrible about it, but I feel terrible because I lost money in that circumstance, right? So, you know, how do, and what if these guys are lucky, right? Like, what if they just have beginner's luck, right? What if you follow this new show or that show or whatever, you you land on this guy or that guy on Twitter, and of course you do so because he's hyping his, you know, I'm 30 and 12 in my last 42. And it's like, well, you know what? You're probably 30 and 13 because you probably arbitrarily cut that off during your, after your last loss. And frankly, before that, you probably had a bunch of losses even before that or this, or this, record of yours would be parsed out over a longer period of time, right? And so they're going to get attention for that and they're going to gain followers and all of that kind of thing's going to happen. And so the scary thing is like, what if these people are lucky? And 
how do we differentiate being lucky from good? And again, that's what we're going, that's what we try to do here on this podcast. If you're new, welcome aboard. Um, if, if you're not, and you've been around since, you know, essentially the restart of sports back in you know, July, awesome to have you. But like, how do we differentiate lucky from good? I can tell what a negative expected value bet is. You can probably tell what one is as well at this point. But the problem is the lucky people win those and now negative expected value bets are considered good, right? And it snowballs. And then maybe, and, and do you think that works forever? No, of course it doesn't. Because if there's bad math, you know, if there's bad math behind you know, wide receiver X scoring a touchdown or hitter Y hitting a home run and like you won your plus 400 bet, even though the odds are absolutely atrocious relative to the probability of that happening, that's going to catch up on you, right? And the guy with the marketing job or the job doing this or job, like, what does he care? He's still getting paid. Like, you're not going to go find him and he's not going to give you your money back for his bad decisions. So we try to make it easy, right? Like we try to make this as easy as possible and, 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 and let you understand and try to guide you to understand why you can't bet Washington minus six and a half last night, for example, right? Like the value is done on Washington minus six and a half. You can know full, full throat that like the Eagles are going to tank this game, like that they do not want to win this game. But the other team has to be capable as well. And so this line kicks up to minus six and a half and like you have to understand that that's not a good bet. Now I don't know that that means Philadelphia is a bet because now you're betting against a team, uh, or on a team in this case that is trying not to win the game, right? Like it's the ultimate sucker situation, right? Like you move this line up just enough to hook all the people who are still willing to bet at minus six and a half, and then the game happens to land six. And listen, that game could have landed three. Philadelphia could have won that game without much effort whatsoever, and now you're scooping all that money away. Now, if you got in at Washington at minus two, now we're having a different conversation, right? Or even when they were sort of at a, at a pick em at the start of the week because we didn't know the information. That's you beating the information to the market, which is great. But part of it is understanding discipline and being like, okay, minus six and a half, I can't bet Washington. I, by choice, don't want to bet Philadelphia because of their motivation or lack thereof. And so then maybe you have to walk away. Or maybe you go, okay, well, I'm going to turn to the total and maybe you bet the under 43 and they score 31 points as a as a whole in the first half and no matter what happens in that second half under 43 is a really bad bet at that point right you you know you could have just hopped in in the second half and taken it at 50 some odd points at that point right like you just it was just never a good bet or maybe you're the person who bet the over and at 31 points, you're sitting there, you're loving life, you're sitting pretty, you're like, okay, all we need is two more touchdowns here, maybe a handful of field goals, whatever, and they only score three in a second. And maybe you're the person who bet the super inflated Texas A&M minus eight and a half, and it wins on Saturday night because of just absurd sequences of events that allow Texas A&M down seven late in the fourth quarter to win that game by 14. All of that just sort of comes into luck and how it all ends up shaking out, right? And maybe you're on the right side for every single one of those. Maybe you're on the wrong side for every single one of those. But again, where were you in 
the middle of the game? Where were you in the middle of the fourth quarter? Like, what was your position and how good did you feel about that position? Because if you bet on North Carolina, you had to feel pretty good about that. If you bet the over in Washington, Philadelphia, you had to feel good about, but pretty good about that. If you bet the opposite of those two things, you had to feel terrible. You had to feel like you're bad at this. And frankly, you probably are. But you still ended up going 2-0 and in those bets. So... And, and you got lucky. And, that, and like that's the concept that we're talking about here with regards to luck. So if we're disciplined, we're making good, well-thought-out bets, you do sort of have to wonder, when do we get lucky? Right? How often can we get lucky if we're on the right side through 55 minutes? What has to happen for us to get lucky? So yes, I wish it were better. <laughs> all in all, I wish the season was better from that standpoint. So um, as for Sunday's action, and listen, if I handicapped games 70% correctly and then the 5% accounting for bad luck drops us to 65%, like that would be awesome. I would be incredible at this. But there's always someone who gets lucky. So the bar is always really high, which can be frustrating in this game. As for the rest of Sunday's action, early action, let's get into it here. Don't have necessarily a ton to talk about with much of these games, just in the general week 17 nature of them. And it's not like we have to take anything from some of these games and go forward with it. But I want to talk about Miami and Buffalo because that was sort of this hot button topic in the first game. So the line, right? We talked about minus four and a half earlier on the week for Buffalo. And that was weird because like that feels a little bit too low if we think Buffalo is going to uh, play all their starters. And then you go, okay, goes down to three. And you're like, okay, well, that must indicate something with regards to how many of the starters Buffalo is going to play, or really fundamentally how long the Josh Allen is going to play. Because a lot of those guys could still play. And if Matt Barkley is behind center, there's obviously less value to Buffalo. Then it goes down on Saturday night to, you know, minus two, then minus one. And I talked yesterday about how I grabbed Miami plus one in the contest uh, because I was essentially making a bet that Josh Allen wasn't going to play very much in this game. And I explained the situation from last season in yesterday's show and how I thought that was going to sort of play out. Now, it played out, if you'll excuse me here, <laughs> given the fact that this is like a three, four touchdown game, it did sort of play out in the best possible circumstance for people who bet Buffalo, whether you bet them at minus four and a half earlier on in the week. And I don't know, again, I don't know why you would be betting week 17 games that early in the week, unless you had a definitive angle like we did with say Pittsburgh plus 10. But at my, you know, whether you're Buffalo, you know, betting Buffalo early, late or whatever, it's sort of, to me, depended on how long Josh Allen was going to play. And so the plan for Josh Allen was, okay, let's, play him a couple of drives, let's get him his 40 yards to become the all-time Bills passing yard, you know, leader over Jim Kelly, and then we'll take him out. And the first couple of drives, he's actually not great, right? He throws the interception, and the Dolphins have the chance to get seven early and kind of, you know, I don't want to say take control of the game, because I don't know that, you know, seven points necessarily gives you control of the game. But if you're the Bills, like, and you don't really need this game, and now you're down seven nothing, like, you know, you sort of start looking to next week, maybe. Anyway, he doesn't look great, and the first couple of drives go the way they, they do, and the Dolphins only get three instead of seven, and Josh Allen hasn't got his 40 yards yet. And maybe if they had just had unsuccessful drives where Josh Allen had gotten his 40 yards, maybe he's out of the game in the first quarter. But he hasn't, so he has to keep going out there to get those yards. And he does, and he 
takes them down and they get a, I think it was a short field and they get a touchdown. I still don't know that he was necessarily at his 40 yards yet. So he's back out there again and they get another touchdown. Now all of a sudden it's you know, 14 to three and you're like, okay, like there's still plenty of time left. Like let's get Josh Allen out of here. So, you know, we don't have to deal with this. Well, the next drive that Buffalo could possibly have is abbreviated or stopped entirely because of a punt return touchdown. Well, that had we did not handicap for that at all, right? The Dolphins' special teams have been perfectly fine all season long. I don't believe they'd given up a punt return touchdown all season. And then all of a sudden they get a punt return touchdown. And that has, of course, nothing to do with whether Josh Allen's in the game or not, or this is happening or that's happening, right? Just kind of a quote-unquote fluke occurrence that, and now it's 21-3. to and you go, oh, okay, still a pretty long way to go here with regards to how much time is left. They could come back as long as Josh Allen doesn't play anymore. Well, again, just the way that the game goes, Buffalo gets the ball back. And again, I'm pretty sure Matt Barkley was going to come in during right before the punt return touchdown. And so then he's going to, okay, fine, he's going to come in the next one. But they get the ball back with about two minutes left and unstrap the helmet Matt Barkley because Josh Allen's going to practice the two-minute drill. So, like, if there's five minutes to go in the in the second quarter, I don't think Josh Allen comes back in for that game because there isn't the two the, there isn't the sort of coaxing of the two-minute drill to have him come back in the game. So, of course, Josh Allen's back in to do the two-minute drill, and I think it took him 30 seconds to go down and score a touchdown, and it's 28 points, and it's over at that point, right? Like you can't even talk yourself into it anymore um, at that point. And of course, now in the second half, Matt Barkley's in, but it's far too late. But there were sort of two extra touchdowns in there that were sort of, you know, game situational, right? Like the punt return, un sort of handicappable. And then the fact that, you know, the Bills would get the ball back with two minutes or so to go to coax them into keeping Josh Allen out there. Now, maybe Matt Barkley, if he comes out there, he leads them on this two-minute drill drive for a touchdown. Like, that's very possible. And I'm not saying that the Dolphins should have won this game or were the right side, but it was just funny that you can plan out for Josh Allen to be leaving the game at the start of the second quarter, for example, with a 11-point lead for example, and just based on kind of luck, circumstance, time on the clock, all of those things sort of being rolled into one, that this game ends up being, you know, three touchdowns in the middle of the game uh, at or around halftime. So is what it is. From a betting standpoint, if you bet a team at plus one and they close minus four, minus three and a half, that is the dream in the NFL. Now, I know it's week 17, so things get wonky and, you know, like that's never going to happen through weeks one through 16 unless somebody like literally sprains their ankle, you know, a high profile quarterback sprains their ankle before a game starts and the line moves like that. Like that's just never going to happen. So to get plus one for a team that's minus three and a half or minus four, that's outstanding. And I would make that bet a thousand times. If they played this Sunday, I would, and you guaranteed me that same circumstance, I would make that over and over and over again. And I tweeted yesterday, if there's one thing, and listen, I always say if there's one thing, there's probably 25 different things. But if there's one thing that this podcast, you know, can help you with, it's understanding that results oriented, there's kind of no, there's really no place for that when we're talking about a really good bet like that. Now, if I had known more and I could have waited and gotten buff Buffalo plus four. Hindsight being twenty twenty, I'd certainly think about that. But again, once Miami's minus three and a half, minus four at kickoff, 
the writing feels like it's on the wall and we could get into sort of what people knew and the dissemination of information with some of these games that we've just seen throughout bowl season being really sort of questionable uh you know whether it's COVID or whether it's guys just opting out for the draft and all of that kind of stuff you know we see these line moves a lot in bowl season and again occasionally in week 17. Uh, Pittsburgh and Cleveland this one's a winner right Steelers trying still with the backups was kind of the handicap right like they're not 10 points worse with Mason Rudolph and a couple of other guys on the defense and you know listen was 10 points too many yes and like that was a relatively comfortable cover though it got a little squirrely sort of midway through the fourth quarter when Mason Rudolph threw uh, an interception there fundamentally not a great sign for the Browns that you know, they it took them as as long as it did to sort of secure that win. But again, the bar for next week is different, right? They're underdogs next week. They don't need to win the game by, you know, multiple touchdowns, essentially. So it's a little bit different, right? Rudolph throws the pick that made this a sweat, and then they bounce back to get within two. Um, talked about how the money line at plus 350, plus 400 had some value. Well, when they're lining up for a two-point conversion, I'm sorry, again, it didn't win, but a plus 400 money line bet does have a lot of value in that situation. Atlanta and Tampa Bay, probably one of the more frustrating games of the day, if not the first slate. Uh, the Miami game was obviously was sort of a Band-Aid situation right off. Uh, but Atlanta, a three-point game late, right? And it's the same story with Atlanta over and over again, right? They hang in, whether they blow the game, whether they're coming back late. It's a close game late, and one way or another, they screw it up. Now, in some cases, they screw it up to the point where they lose by three, and sometimes they lose by six. And in this case, they lose by 17, giving up essentially two touchdowns in the last couple of minutes. They have a backdoor opportunity down 13, uh, and really just fumbles, really want just a really random fumble. And so the line between who backdoors and who doesn't is really skewed right where you'd expect Matt Ryan and company to be able to pull off a backdoor whereas you have other teams that you would think would be much less likely to do so we'll get to those in a little bit later on um and they and they do it and Matt Ryan can't and again this wasn't necessarily on Matt Ryan I thought he played okay I mean in general he still plays scared and again is a team is a guy who we will be fading into oblivion the rest of his career uh by the way Bucks win and we survive yeah, the lamest survivor pool year ever with the first and kind of ironic that the first year a big prominent contest gets started in Las Vegas that sort of everybody can talk about this isn't just like your buddy running this you know survivor contest for the last decade who's you know accumulated a thousand people over the course of you know sort of you know uh word of mouth type situation this is like oh no this is a survivor contest it's very legal we can all talk about it etc cetera, etc cetera. and then this year of all years is the one where, you know, 2%, 5%, even in some cases, 10% of the people manage to make it to the end. And again, just like every other week, give or take, right? Like all the favorites come in on week 17, the quote unquote squirreliest of weeks. All of that happens this uh, this year. So um, people get paid out about $80,000 Canadian, about 70, you know, a little under $60,000 US before taxes in that contest. So we can look back at that Thanksgiving game and you know where I'm going with this. Uh, Dallas and Washington, that one game ends up costing us about $80,000 Canadian. Not great. Not great. But is what it is. We'll be back next year. And, uh, and and listen, next year, I think 
hopefully we get things back from an NFL competitiveness standpoint where the Jets are better, the Jags are better, Cincinnati's got Joe Burrow. You know, hopefully there's no season-ending injuries to people halfway through the season that completely destroys, you know, a team's chances of being competitive and we get the old survivor where four weeks to go it's you and three other people and it comes down to you know can you even get to week 17 and all of that sort of thing that would be a lot more fun next season uh speaking of that cincinnati team nothing to say here right baltimore blowout as expected um question now becomes are we buying the ravens based on these last three games against the bad competition tons to talk about that talk about regarding that this week uh the jets disappointing um, Patriots score on the first drive and they basically don't score for the next three quarters. And the Jets slowly but surely end up taking a full touchdown lead. And you go, okay, this might be it, right? Like this might be all they needed because the Patriots haven't again scored for three quarters. And then of course the Patriots score a bunch in the fourth quarter and you sort of go, okay, like how, you know, how much did that have to do with Sam Darnold being bad? And listen, he was trying to throw interceptions all game long, as he always does. And then how much of it just had to do with the fact that, you know, maybe the Jets didn't really want to win that game all that much. And, you know, you get into that fourth quarter and you're looking at the clock. And if you're Adam Gase, you already know that you're getting fired as soon as the game's done. So, like, are you bringing out the good stuff with regards to the plays? Not that there were good stuff at any point this season with the Jets. Anyway, annoying because, you know, you're sitting there going like, okay, the Patriots don't care about this game, as indicated by the fact that, like, just watch them for the first three quarters. Really kind of a bummer. Uh, Minnesota and Detroit, again, why we talk that much about this. Line was seven, drops with Stafford News, and it was just, you know, a game to avoid until 15 minutes before the game. I'm like, hey, with Stafford, Cousins, all the defensive injuries, like, why am I not betting the over on this? And I checked the number, and it's 53, and I was like, that feels like a game that should be in, like, the high 50s from a total standpoint. And then I bet the over. And sometimes it's just that simple. And sometimes it takes a full week to kind of clue in. But obviously the Stafford involvement changes things. But frustration over, you know, there's all kinds of frustration about him coming out of that Tampa Bay game just a week before, right? And you just go like, you really couldn't have just stayed in? Or you like, that had to happen last week. But all of a sudden he was good this week. Um, really kind of annoying. Uh, Dallas and the New York Giants warned you about getting excited about Dallas. Nothing for me other than the teaser leg in this one um from a fan standpoint just sort of an old school nfl like seeing crazy stuff happen at the end of games i really kind of wanted to see the gallman fumble be a fumble just to see if dallas could pull off that sort of miracle comeback because that would have ended up and listen, neither team was going to end up getting into the playoffs because philly was tanking that game but like that could have had at least in the moment an opportunity to be sort of like the historic situation that we kind of love looking back on, right? Like the time Wayne Gallman didn't even get hit and just fumbled after getting the first down for yardage that he needed. As for the afternoon slate, and we'll get to the important games in a second here, but just allow me just for a second here. Uh, the exorcism game. Las Vegas and the Denver Broncos. I know you want to talk about it. Um, so I talked about it yesterday. Taking Denver plus two and a half because for one, value on Denver, right? Like why is Las Vegas... Yeah, just following the, the Las Vegas Raiders here over the last three weeks, right? Like, they're favorites to the Chargers by three and a half. Then they're underdogs by three to Miami. And now they're favorites on the road by three 
to Denver, and you just go, what's going on? <laughs> I know we don't want to put games as pickums because we want a point spread to be involved so that like that generates money along with the money line generating money, and maybe teasers are generating money and all of that kind of thing. And then this game comes across, and you're like, why is Las Vegas minus two and a half, minus three on the road here? And I go, oh, God, it's the exact same game situation as last year. And again, I'll just indulge me for a second here because this was a game that we had in the Super Contest last year. Denver was minus three. And again, even from last year to this year, I don't really know what the difference is between these teams, the versions of them this year and the versions of them last year. Even if you look at the Raiders starting hot, six and three, fading out down the stretch, it's kind of literally the exact same season for them. And Denver, Drew Locke, Vic Fangio, like all the pieces are pretty much the same when it comes to Denver. But last season, 2019, it's 16 to 3. Broncos, 10 minutes to go. Again, I've got Broncos minus 3 in the Super Contest, in contention, in the top 20 at this point. Every single game, every single point matters. And it's 16 to 3 with 10 minutes to go. And the Raiders get a field goal. It's 16 to 6 with 3.09 to go. And the Raiders get another field goal, right? They put into place the, hey, we're down 13 points. Let's try to get there with a bunch of field goals type of offense, right? Just classic John Gruden, just kind of making kind of dumb decisions down the stretch. And it's 16 to 9. And of course, the Raiders get the ball back. And you're like, huh, oh, okay. But they turn it over on downs at their own 27 with 2 minutes and 13 seconds left. So you think, okay, game over here, right? Like, worst case, we're going to run the ball three times here, take some time off the clock. Obviously, two-minute warning. If they had a timeout, take at least 40 seconds off the clock here. The Broncos, sure enough, they run three times. And after third down, they're still basically at the 27-yard line with a 42-yard uh, yard field goal coming to clinch the game. But wait, there's a flag on the play. Garrett Bowles with a 15-yard unnecessary roughness penalty not only, of course, pushes them back out of, quote-unquote, out of field goal range. It's now a 57-yard field goal, but it also stops the clock. Well, I don't have to tell you what or maybe I do have to tell you what happens, because no, Vic Fangio doesn't punt, knowing that the Raiders, with 100 seconds left in the game and no timeouts, would have to go essentially the full length of the field. He says, no... How about we try a kick from 57 yards out? Well, I don't have to tell you what happened next, right? The kick misses. And now the Raiders only need 53 yards. And, of course, they get it. And they score a touchdown with seven seconds left. Gruden, not wanting to go to overtime, goes for two for the win and doesn't get it. And that was last year's game. That wasn't this year's game. Flash forward one year in a different scenario with regards to sort of how we got there. No stupid 15-yard penalty. No stupid decision to kick, try to kick a 57-yard field goal to keep the other team in the game if they miss. But again, Las Vegas, down seven, scores a touchdown. They go 4-2, and I'm having complete flashbacks, right? Like, obviously, just total PTSD situation. They're almost not going to go for two because they're confused. They're messed up. They don't have any timeouts left. They're they're on their way to getting a five-yard penalty. Are they going to go for two if they're seven yards away from the end zone? Or are they going to kick the field goal, go to overtime, potentially screw me with potentially a Vegas touchdown, or even at that point, pushing at minus three would be incredibly annoying as well. And then Vic Fangio swoops in and saves the day with a timeout. Why? 
No one knows. Why would anybody call a timeout defensively in that situation? Only Vic Fangio. And I shouldn't say only Vic Fangio because there's plenty of incompetent bozos in the NFL from a coaching standpoint. It's this hilarious sequence. And now Vegas is like, oh, thanks for calling the timeout. They go for two. They get it this time. And again, once you go for two, when we're talking plus three, minus three here, it ceases to really matter what you actually do. Now, of course, because the Raiders are the Raiders, they give up a massive chunk of yardage for uh, the Broncos and allow the Broncos to have a long field goal, much like they did the week before against the Dolphins. So even if you weren't planning on the game being exactly the same as it was last year, you can kind of plan for the Raiders to have the exact same game as they did last week, or in this case, the exact same season as they did last year. So let's remember that because you know Gruden's not going anywhere at $10 million a pop here. So Fangio quietly doesn't have a clue what he's doing here as Obviously, that last timeout was their last timeout. They have to hustle everybody down the field, and they don't, <clears throat> excuse me, and they don't get a chance to kick a reasonable field goal. And the field goal, of course, gets blocked. I have a minor mini heart attack that the Raiders are going to return this thing ran randomly for a touchdown. Fortunately, they don't. We get there with Denver plus three, and I'd like to say that all sorts of demons were exercised. But to be honest with you, I'd have preferred them to just have this game won last year than this year. Like, I would prefer to have won it last year over this year. Uh, other meaningless games, we'll get through this as quickly as we possibly can here because I know we're kind of running late there. Chargers win in cover, all right? Though Kansas City scores first, kind of had you going, oh my God, Anthony Lynn's going to somehow blow this. He actually doesn't. They finished the season with four straight victories, and it's like, is Anthony Lynn going to come back? And part of me is kind of excited because we kind of know what to do when Anthony Lynn is the coach, right? Just take whoever the underdog is. If he, you know he's going to be the underdog um, in games where they have a chance to win, and we're going to get all kinds of extra points like we did against Atlanta, like we did against Vegas, and you know, a couple other games, I'm sure, of course, that uh, against Kansas City, all of that kind of thing. And when they're favored, they're going to blow it. They're going to have it come down into just hilarious fashion. And the bad news is, as I look over at my screen right now, Chargers fire Anthony Lynn. And so all of that is done. So who do they hire next? Who knows? That's for a later date for us, for us to discuss. Um, Seahawks. And you know, get into this whole like Seahawks, Packers, New Orleans whole triumvirate of like, what are they doing? Seahawks front door, right? They get, they, they're down 10 points. And they come all the way back to take the lead, then even go up 10 points. And you go, man, that's one of the worst beats of the season if you're backing San Francisco. And then San Francisco, unlike the Falcons, are able to come right down the field and backdoor it right back. And the interesting thing here is the duo who won the Super Contest. All right, we have to talk about the winners here that get the spoils. The duo who won the Super Contest, um, obviously for less money uh, as usual, based on obviously the whole pandemic and travel issues and all that kind of thing, they also would have won the Circa Million if San Francisco hadn't re-backdoored. Now you're going, what? The same duo almost won the Super Contest on Circa Million? And at first blush, you go, wow, like that's crazy, blah, blah. But it's really not all that crazy, right? Like, if you have a great season, which I don't want to say any of us are capable of doing, but, like, kind of any of us are capable of doing in one good season, not to say that they aren't really good at this all the time, 
But if you have one really good season, like, yeah, of course you're going to win all of the contests that you're in. In the same way that if you entered 10 Survivor contests you would, and you had a really good season and you survived to the end, you're going to win all 10 of those Survivor contests. It's the exact same thing because they're not going to put in opposite plays. They're not going to put in different plays in week one, like maybe a game or two here or there, you know, to have a slightly different record. But like, you know, your plays are your plays, right? And whether you go 56% that, you know, this season or whether you go 62% this season or, or whatever, like the plays are your plays. And so uh, kudos to them for entering both contests because you could sit around and be like, well, I went 62% in my home league and I won, you know, 400 bucks. It's like, yeah, but you didn't go to Vegas. You didn't sign up $1,500 for this contest, $1,000 for this contest, $1,000 for this survivor contest, et cetera, et cetera. So kudos to them for signing up for all of these and then coming through with a victory in all of them. And unfortunately for them, if they had done this any other year, they would be millionaires. But they won 400 and change, $400,000 and change, nothing to sneeze at by any means, in the Super Contest. And I think they ended up finishing second or third in the Circa Million, good for another couple hundred thousand dollars. But again, if this had happened in a non-pandemic year they end up winning 1.5 in the super contest and a million, you know, probably closer to a million in circa million. And so that's an element of luck, right? Like maybe, you know, as good as these guys ran this season, unless I haven't been following them until literally yesterday, but like as good as they ran, they also sort of had an overarching bad luck of having this good season, the probably the best season of their lives, having this season come on a season that was less lucrative from a contest standpoint than all of these others. Uh, big disappointment in the late slate was Carolina. Teddy Bridgewater was atrocious in this game. And I know this game had a very was very easy to sort of fall under the radar, but he was awful, awful in this game. And of course we have all the, you know, Carolina plus seven, you know, like the, uh, Teddy Bridgewater's like 85% and like blah, blah, blah. But I don't know what his deal was yesterday, man, but he was atrocious. And so... The Saints end up getting there, the, the Seahawks end up getting there from victory standpoint, and so it's like Green Bay needs to win this game, and of course they handle their business quite easily, beating Chicago. Closer game than the scoreboard indicates, right? And a lot of these games were like that, right? Tampa Bay, Atlanta, for example, where, you know, it just fourth quarter motivation, energy effort sort of dies down late, and Green Bay wins. Rodgers, as usual, incredible. Green Bay, I think, the best team in the league. Wouldn't be shocked with a Green Bay Buffalo Super Bowl at this point in time. Uh, Rams beat Arizona. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, see, Arizona, I'm telling you all year, right? Like that ship, I don't want to say it sailed, but like we've beaten that dead horse and like Kyler Murray's hurt. So I'm going to give Arizona a pass in this game. The Streveler guy was terrible. I'm just bummed we can't fade Arizona in the playoffs because the line would be a lot lower than the Bears and the Saints line. Right. Like we were going to, you know, we weren't going to get points, but like we were going to have a minus four, minus five, something along those lines, depending on the matchup. And we would have been all over a really good team taking out the Cardinals in uh, short order. So that's the real disappointment in all of this, that the Cardinals couldn't make the playoffs with or without an injured Kyler Murray. Now, maybe they rally it up next season. They get a little better. They get some guys back healthy. Right. Chandler Jones, a lot of the defensive line issues, Peters, et cetera, et cetera. Kings, Kingsbury, still kind of a dope, though, right? Still kind of an idiot. So we'll see come next season. Um, on the AFC th side, things got, things got things escalated quickly 
right? I think the Titans literally killed man with a trident. Titans and Colts game, um, both going on simultaneously. You think the Colts have this thing easily. You think the Titans have this thing easily. And it's not that big of a deal. And honestly, after North Carolina bet, uh, the North Carolina bet on Saturday, and Aaron Jones, and that starting a week where runs, uh, broken runs late in games, covering spreads for favorites happened four times in college and pro to me in that one week, all exact same situations, right? Three, four minutes to go. All you need to do is run out the clock and they crack a 50 plus yard run to go over the, uh, over the spread. And I talked about it on Sunday. From a contest standpoint, plus 13 and a half with Jacksonville, it's a bad number, but like it's a number that's still higher than my number, not a ton higher. My number was 13, and listen, if they kick the extra point instead of going for two, and they should have gone for two, I'm not saying they shouldn't have, but if they kick the extra point, the game lands exactly on 13. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going like, yeah, 13 was my number, that makes a ton of sense. Well, they go for two, and you know, the DB swipes at the ball, and again, he's playing the you know, it pretty well, like Phil Rivers throws a really good pass, but it could have been deflected, it could have been knocked down, and this could have easily been a 12-point game. By the way, this game's a six-point game, Jacksonville ball around the 50-yard line, and so I sort of quietly whispered, murmured on Sunday's show, like, kind of think Jacksonville value, you know, has some money line value at, like, plus seven 50 and they did like if you have the ball at the 50 yard line and you're only down six points like live you're not plus 750 i promise you the live betting market doesn't have you at plus 750 you know you're still going to be an underdog but like not by that much so yeah like plus 750 ended up having value and so after that Aaron Jones thing, that, that sort of, you know, the Anthony Lynn debacle in Buffalo sort of kicked off that bad run of, of unfortunate luck. But like the Aaron Jones one was the one that kind of put it over the top. And I talked about on the show the next day how I just totally snapped after that happened. Like, I'm, you know, and obviously the Texas A&M one from Saturday. And it's just like, I'm just over these long runs. And it didn't end up mattering because, again, we lost those first two games in the Circa Million contest. So... If we had won those first two games and then we're on our way to winning the Rams and we're on our way to winning the the Broncos and on our way to a 5-0, and I probably pitch my phone through a wall. Not into a wall. Probably through a wall. Like super power, like discus version through a wall. So the good news is we... No, it wasn't that big of a deal because it just cost the plus 14s. But by the time we talked about it on Sunday, there was plus 14 and a half, plus 15 and a half. So you all, if you followed along ended up getting there comfortably regardless of that final play. But just knowing that during the week, there were all those plus 14s out there that deserved much better, as did the plus 13 and a half. And then there's the Titans, right? They're in control. Looks like they're going to cover minus seven easily. And you saw the number go from seven and a half to seven on game day. And you sort of go, oh, that's not a great sign. Obviously, Deshaun Watson at this point is just on his own. He is incredible keeping them, dragging them back in these games promise you that offense isn't some generational offense from a plan standpoint it's just the quarterback probably a top five quarterback in the league that again is probably screwed for the next three or four or five years as long as he's in houston the texans d saves the day for tennessee giving up anything that tennessee wanted including the late throw to aj brown titans defense 
is the concern, of course, for the playoffs. Tons more to talk about that over the course of the season. And speaking of those playoffs, we'll have some fun stuff this week, I hope, leading up to the playoffs. Friday's show, of course, we'll have the full handicap on all six games. Kind of nice that it's only six games instead of like 15, 16 games. We'll have more of a focus on prop bets. Now, I don't know how many are going to necessarily be out there on Friday. Probably the games for Saturday will kind of try to project some uh, some numbers um, leading into Saturday's games and, of course, Sunday's games. And again, I don't think we'll probably have um, props with regards to yardage and all of that kind of stuff by then. But we'll do our best to get the prop parade going on Friday. That's all for today. Shout out to my dude, Sheldon Alexander. We miss him on these Mondays. Hopefully this podcast was helpful to your understanding of the betting markets in the NFL this season. If so, please rate and review the show and share it with friends and enemies. Until tomorrow, I'll see you at the window.